When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. This episode is brought to you by Snapple. Want to know another Snapple fact? The first hot air balloon passengers were a sheep, a duck, and a rooster. Ridiculous. Check out Snapple.com to find ridiculously flavored Snapple near you. Hey, everybody. Welcome to Performance Anxiety on the Pantheon Podcast Network. I am your host, Mark, and I want to thank our sponsor, AKG, for setting us up with their Podcast for Essentials kit. The Lira mic and the set of headphones that come in it are amazing. If you've ever thought of starting your own podcast, this is hands down the best way to do it. Poet Joseph Massey was kind enough to spend a little time with me. He discovered poetry after a particularly troublesome childhood, which included neglectful parents and spending one school year by himself in an auditorium. He spent his time after that reading and writing poetry, corresponding with some of the most influential poets alive, like Sid Corman, Robert Bly, and Allen Ginsberg, who gave him a lot of advice and encouragement. Joseph was so dedicated to his art that he wound up living alone in a shack and almost drinking himself into oblivion. And just as he was turning everything around, he was blindsided by unfounded and anonymous accusations which cost him his livelihood. But he's rebuilding and has found a strength that he didn't even know he had. But that probably won't keep him from getting texters thumbs like Kanye. Follow Joseph on social media at jmasseypoet. Subscribe to his Substack for regular poetry fixes. Follow us at Performance ANX for regular podcast fixes. Give us a coffee fix at ko-fi.com slash performance anxiety. Merch is at performanceanx.threadless.com. Now let's ease into our conversation with poet Joseph Massey on performance anxiety, part of the Pantheon Podcast Network. This is the poet Joseph Massey. I'm on performance anxiety podcast. And uh, yeah, buy my book, A New Silence published in 2019 by Shearsman Press. You can get it on Amazon and you can follow me on Substack. Subscribe to my newsletter, josephmassey.substack.com. That worked. Okay, good. Like I said, this will be the least academic podcast you've ever been on. So. All right. <laughs> we'll see. <laughs> Hopefully it'll be a fun one though. Okay. Oh man. I don't know what's going on with my throat today. <clears throat> well, what's going on with mine is that the, the wildfires from uh, the West Coast have made their way all the way. All the fumes and the smoke have made their way to Massachusetts somehow, 3,000 miles that's, away. Maybe that's what's going on. I'm in Virginia. So. <laughs> maybe, but yeah, here it's been uh, hazy skies and uh, yeah, it's... Uh, from wildfires 3,000 miles away, man. And that's, that's a, but it's very irritating. That's amazing. You know, you'd think that stuff like that would dissipate over 3,000 miles. It's amazing. I mean, just to travel that long, a vaporous substance like that, I mean. Yeah. 
yeah, I guess it just catches a stream and that's it. But uh, yeah, so it's caused a bit of a scratchy throat, but I feel good. Good, good. Well, I'm glad you could join me and, and discuss a little bit of poetry because I don't really know much about it. But through having a couple of poets on the podcast, I've really started to develop an interest <clears throat> in it. And you know, I'd like to learn more about it. So I kind of discovered you through Twitter, through um, a post. I follow a few people that are apparently really big fans of yours, like Patricia Heaton and, and a few other people. And um, they would like your posts and retweet them. And I said, well, all right, let me, let me look into this guy. And, and uh, I liked what I've read. I don't, I, I don't know much about it, but it's very interesting to me. Not, not only the poetry, but the visual aspect of your poetry as well. I'm a photographer, so that kind of catches my eye when I see something that that's uh, unusual, the, like uh, some of the poems that you've you've published. And we'll we'll get into that a little later. But uh, I'm very excited to have you on. Thank you. Thanks for inviting me. And to find out where you're at now, obviously we need to go back and and see where you've come from. And I know that you didn't exactly have it easy growing up and you know, we don't need to go into too much detail with anything because I've seen interviews and I've listened to some podcasts and, and, and you've covered it pretty well. And if anybody is interested in going back and, and finding out more about that, you've, you've written an amazing article on Quillette and it's been published in other areas and, and, and people have read it as a podcast. And, uh, so I would Recommend if, if anybody's interested in that more detail about everything that's gone on, check those out because I think you've pretty much covered everything. There's really not, no new ground that we're going to uncover by going yeah. over it yet again. Yeah. So, yeah. Where, so, so where did you grow up? You grew up kind of in the area that I live in right now, didn't you? Like it was in Delaware. I lived in Delaware from the age of 13 to 21, but prior to that, I lived uh, in a, an area called Chichester, Pennsylvania. It's not far from Philly. It's uh, lots of little refinery towns, dirty old towns. Right. Like the Pogues yeah. said. Like the Pogues said. Yeah. <laughs> and were you an avid reader as a kid? What, what were you interested in growing up? Was it reading? Was it music? Was there artwork? Well, when I was a when I was a little kid, I was totally into action figures and totally into coming up with my own my own theater, my own worlds alone. You know, I didn't like to play with other kids so much unless it was some kind of sports related thing. And I, I was physically active, but my favorite thing was just be alone you know, with a cinder block somewhere in a corner of a, you know, of a, of a yard that hasn't been touched in forever and just, uh, play with my, uh, with my action figures. But around the age of 12, I, I started reading a lot more and, uh, yeah, I, I write about this somewhat at length in the Quillette essay that you mentioned. I, I found a biography about Jim Morrison, didn't like the doors, didn't care about the doors, but for some reason I bought this biography. You're more of a fine young cannibals guy, I hear. I think at the time I had <laughs> FYC carved into the back of my head, shaved into the back of my head. And it was some old some old school barber did it and he hated my guts for asking him to do something 
so time consuming and pointless. He had no idea who fine, the fine young cannibals were. So yeah, I wasn't really a Doors fan, but I became a fan of who Jim Morrison was when he was younger, and because I saw myself in him as far as being a delinquent and but being smart. And um, and I read the books that this book said he read, and I got interested in Arthur Rimbaud, the French poet, and then really got deeply into uh, the beats, the beat generation, so to speak. Um, Jack Kerouac in particular, Allen Ginsberg, right. and on and on. That's So it, it was the age of 12 in the sixth grade. Is, that's when it really, that's when I became a poet. So that's when you actually started to write your own work? Yeah, I was in a permanent in-school suspension. They, they about a month into the school year, they told me don't go to class anymore. Just go sit in the auditorium. And uh, I don't think they could get away with that now. I, was gonna say, I don't even think back then that was legal. I seriously doubt it was legal. A lot of things that went on in that school were not legal. This is Harlan Elementary in Wilmington, Delaware. And it's a very old school. It was a very rough school, you know, full of kids who are really poor. So most of the kids didn't have much bandwidth for school itself, but they were acting out their their own traumas as well, yeah. um, you know. And yeah, I was I acted out quite a bit and defended myself when I was challenged. Um, and they knew I was smart, and they said, "Just go sit in the auditorium." And it was this very old auditorium, God. really kind of beautiful almost like sitting in a church or something you know i i really liked being in that kind of solitude and uh that's where i started writing they just left you alone in there did they have teachers come in and try to teach anything or you're just there by yourself there was a music teacher who took an interest in me and she would drag me out of the auditorium occasionally and she would have me help her do things in her classroom wow yeah, they thought I had some musical talent. Some, the band teacher said I had a horn lip, and he tried to get <laughs> he tried to get me to play trumpet, but uh, there was no practicing trumpet in a you know apartment building, you know. And then with my mother and stepfather, they just they couldn't handle it, and I, I couldn't really take the trumpet to like the courtyard in this complex of apartment buildings. It just would have been uh, too embarrassing for me, so I had to give it up. That. It's a horn lip. I've never heard that. That almost sounds insulting. It does. <laughs> you got <laughs> a probably horn something lip. else that's illegal. Yeah. 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 <laughs> but I, I had it. He said I had like the best tone he's heard in, in, in quite some time. So I guess that's all has something to do with the horn lip. What was you were writing? What were you doing with your poems in the sixth grade? I mean, were you just writing them and collecting them and just trying to get through day to day? Because I know, like you said, you know, your, your mom and your stepdad were pretty abusive and, and, you know, drug addicts and your grandmother had her own issues, which you go, That's right. like you said, you know, you, you go through that in, in pretty good detail in, in that article. So what were you doing with your poetry? Did you have a plan for it? Not at all. No, I, at that, I, I had a composition book. It was just your classic kind of marble, marble cover composition book. And, um, it was just therapeutic to fill it up with this language that wanted to come out of me. And, and at that time, I hadn't really found um, I hadn't really found my footing, but it felt great to see my words on the page. And it just felt amazing to write, to articulate or to attempt to articulate 
the world around me or what was going on in my head. But I had no intention of doing anything with uh, – I had no ambition in that sense. Uh, there was no – nothing. I wasn't thinking about a career at 12, but I was right. really, really just wanting to survive. And poetry became a, a means of survival. And th that was its most important function to me at that age, certainly. Did you show anybody the, the work that you were writing? No, but my grandmother found that notebook – that I had first started writing in and uh, burned it. Oh. Because it was uh, blasphemous, she said. It was blasphemous. Oh, yeah. okay. There were dirty words. There were too many, too many curse words, I guess. I don't know. She said it was filth. And uh, wow. yeah, I, I was staying, I, I stayed with her in the summers and I was kind of turning the corner of the house, walking down the little, the little sidewalk towards the back porch and there was all this smoke. And there was my grandmother, who was like four foot seven, wearing a muumu, with flames, <laughs> you know, at her feet, wearing her Doctor Scholl shoe, kind of oh. stomping out the ashes. And um, wow. yeah, and so I, I learned how to. I, I just I had to hide my notebooks from that day forward. So you were still determined to write. That didn't discourage you at all. It upset me, but it, but it also was some kind of um, affirmation that I was writing something that had an effect on on, on somebody, on my grandmother, anyway. <laughs> that's you know that's a good point. That that's kind of affirmation that you have an aptitude for it. Yeah, yeah, it, I, I succeeded in in some way. That was like that was my first review. Really, it was just seeing it burning. <laughs> that's a hell of a review, man. <laughs> the best one yet. Yeah. <laughs> and you started writing and reaching out to other poets, some very well-known poets, poets that even I know, like Allen Ginsberg. How did you decide to just start to reaching out to these people? Well, at that time I was living in Dover, Delaware, which um, is pretty pretty barren for, for a kid who's interested in books and and poetry and the and the arts. Um, I, we lived in a trailer park behind a uh, NASCAR stadium. Oh wow! And uh, yeah, and it was just very bleak. The landscape was bleak, and uh, I didn't know anybody who liked poetry, read poetry, wanted to talk about poetry. So, but I spent a lot of time at the library, and that provided me with all kinds of company in the form of books, but, but also in the form of this reference book called uh, Contemporary Poets. And I forget who published it, but it had like bibliographies for the poets and um, for most of the poets had their address. That's so, insane. yeah. So they had Allen Ginsberg's PO box. I didn't expect God. a response. I didn't, I didn't know. I, I just, I, I wrote to him. I, I, I think i wrote it on a typewriter with like some drawing paper because I didn't even have actual typing paper. So it was like very thick paper. And wow. um, yeah, and I, and I sent him a bunch of poems, maybe three, not that many. And uh, he responded. Yeah. He, and it was a handwritten postcard in an envelope. And he said the poems were better than what he wrote at 15. Wow. Which, yeah, yeah. And told me to read William Carlos Williams and Gregory Corso. Now at, at that time, I'm, a, I'm, I'm just assuming you knew how high pro of a profile he had. Oh, yeah. yeah he was, was a legend. Yeah, yeah. He was a legend. I mean, he was godlike to me at the time. And 
I wouldn't say he's godlike to me now, or no human is, but um, I I, th- I have even a better appreciation or, or a stronger appreciation for his work now uh, than I did then. I think just with time and experience, I can go deeper into his work. Okay. Whereas at the time, I was still learning. I was still uh, trying to understand why Ginsburg or any poet would do certain things in their poems. And I still always try to figure that out when I read, but I just have a better sense of things now. But yeah, I was fully aware of who he was culturally as a figure, um, as an iconic figure. Yeah. And uh, yeah, I was blown away to get that, to get that mail from him. Oh yeah, that had to be amazing. Yeah. But nobody in my family had any idea that, I mean, I told them, but they were just were like, okay. Whatever. Yeah. Who's that? Yeah. Oh, Good for you. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so that one must okay. So you've got some amazing advice for and and encouragement from Allen Ginsberg. Who else were you were you reaching out to at that time? Who else took an interest in you? Robert Bly uh, did as well. Wow! And that was another total surprise. He, he sent me a typed up letter, a copy of a recent book of his, I don't remember the title, but it was a book of prose poems, which was another layer of education at the time, because I didn't really know what prose poems were. I had some sense of it from Rimbaud, but um, had never seen a whole book of prose poems by an American poet. Uh, You're probably going to have to explain some of this to me, because like I said, I'm I'm brand new to trying to get into poetry. So uh, what is in prose? Well, pro, uh, prose poem, it's kind of an, an oxymoronic uh, term because it's because poetry is not prose. That's kind of what distinguishes it. OK, but basically a prose poem is it's a poem that's in paragraph form. It's in sentences that there are no line breaks. OK. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So it's a block of text. Oh, OK. So that makes more sense to me now. Yeah. Yeah. When did you first get published? I'm assuming well, that's the pub- right term. Yeah, I was published in uh, my middle school's literary magazine. Oh, cool. Um, yeah, I never went to gym class because it was just uh, a nightmare. It's a very, I was very introverted at the time. Oh, you're already and, in the auditorium. Um, you should have been in there. Yeah, well, this is after that. <laughs> okay. this, this, is, this, is going, this is when I lived in Dover. I was in another school. But I would go sit in the library and they just had a bin where people could just put their poems for the literary magazine. And I would just write them on the spot right there and put like three or four a day in the bin. Wow. And, um, they published a few of them on like one page and all the poems were illustrated. They didn't know what to make of mine really. So they just illustrated it with scribbles, just like some, some scribbles. (laughs) Like, I don't know why, I don't know what, I don't know what they were trying to get, get across. I don't know some kind of, uh, fog or something i don't know but uh interesting yeah but that that was exciting even though it was just uh you know the the middle school literary magazine but the first serious publication was in a uh, a magazine called house organ and um the poem they published is really terrible <laughs> but the the editor 
knew how young I was and I think wanted to really be supportive. And, and, and he ended up being supportive. Kenneth Warren is his name. He lived, I think, in Indianapolis. Uh, he was a librarian. He passed away some years ago. But he um, he was I was introduced to him by one of my correspondents, one of these older poets I looked up to as a mentor. Oh, wow. Yeah. Yeah. And um, so I appeared in House Organ periodically for for years. But that first poem was terrible. Yeah. <laughs> really bad. So you started a, a correspondence with Sid Corman. Yeah. And he was really important to you. How, yeah, he was. How did he ch- help you out? How did he change your life, basically? Well, the first line of the first letter he sent to me was, your life is about to change. Wow. And it, it absolutely did. And by the time I'd received his first letter, I had read uh, at least 20 books of his because I was living near the campus of University of Delaware at the time. And they have they had quite a collection of his work. Oh, wow. And um, many of the books were very limited, limited edition letterpress printed, you know, bound in Japanese style. Oh. So they're, they were very intimate. And his poems are very short. And what I learned and and what I gleaned from that experience of reading his work in that library was just uh, how intimate poetry could be between poet and reader with the book as a means to to as the vehicle for for those words Um, and how the white space around the poem was just as important, almost as important as the words themselves, because that white space lends intimacy to the poem. And I, I learned that just uh, just intuitively from reading his work. It wasn't anything I, um, had, you know, articulated or clarified or I wasn't, you know, writing artist statements at the time or anything. But but it was a deep education just reading his books. And then when he started writing to me, well, I started writing to him and he would write back right away, even though he lived in Japan. He would write back the day he got letters. He was wow. he he was very proud of himself for always getting back to people immediately, and so I would you know I'd write to him and I'd hear from him in a in a couple of weeks, and uh, he really advanced my self education by pointing me towards poets I had never heard of before, who like Laurie Niedecker, who is a poet in the Midwest who wrote very short poems, very technically skilled short poems about the natural world around her and also the, 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 the town she lived in. She wrote a kind of folk poetry, they call it. Oh, okay. uh, but, but it was also very image. The images are very strong and clear in her work. And, um, you know, poets like that, who I don't think I would have heard of at that time, unless someone told me to read them. And I was so dependent on my correspondence suggesting things to me, read this, read that. And I always took their suggestions and Sid was always ready for a suggestion. And Sid was also very blunt in his criticism of the poems that I sent, which I needed. I needed that. I wanted it. I wasn't offended or put off by his uh, criticism, which could be harsh. Yeah. That, you know, how old were you at this time approximately? 19. Wow. 19. Yeah. That's, you know, that's impressive because, you know, we, you and I have, corresponded a little bit before this and I you know I went to college for photography and one of the big things that they would do would would be to do critiques where you would shoot you know 10 rolls of film be in the darkroom for hours pick three or four images and put them up on the wall 
and the entire class would go around and critique him. And I wasn't ready for that. I, I took it personally. And so I wasn't prepared to be critiqued in, with my work. Much better at it now. But at that age, there's no way I could have done that. I, it's, it's so impressive to me that somebody that age could take that type of criticism and, and use it and learn from it. I, I was not mature enough to do that. I think he respected it that I was able to take the criticism because he, I, I, you know, he was always very critical. He was the editor of a very important uh, literary magazine, really a seminal publication called Origin. And he initially accepted work by submission. People could just send work, whoever could just send work to Sid for yeah. consideration. And um, he rejected one woman rejected her poems, gave her some comments that were typical Sid. They were they were maybe kind of sharp. But he writes about it in the introduction to an anthology of, of stuff that was in origin. He said that this woman uh, threatened to kill him, basically. Whoa. Yeah, yeah, he got death threats for it. So that, at that point, he decided he was only going to uh, solicit poems from poets for origin. There would be no more open submissions. But yeah, he would still get... He would get some very um, dramatic responses from people who did not like his criticism. Um, he, in some interview, he mentioned that he told a younger kid, younger guy, that his poetry just wasn't there yet. You know, he's got a, lot, got a long way to go. And the kid flipped yeah. out and started yelling at Sid, who was a very old man at the time, oh, and he wow. kept saying something like, "I, I just wanted some affirmation." And but Sid, and Sid was very interested in the word affirmation like this kid wanted my affirmation you know he was kind of taken aback by that and this was in you know the early the early aughts and yeah. um that kind of offense is even more prevalent now where oh, um sure i mean yeah you can't i mean these are people graduating from mfa programs you'd think they'd be ready to get some critique because they've spent you know three or four years in workshops, but in workshops now in MFA programs, you can't really be honest because you'll offend oh, someone. Yeah. And you can't critique things anymore. It's just, it's unbelievable. It's a real disservice to, to say the least. It's not just a disservice to the art, but it's contributing to its decline culturally. Poetry's always had a hard time kind of, at least seeming to be relevant. I mean, I think poetry's not going, I know poetry's not going anywhere. It's always been a kind of underground current that's essential. You know, it's part of that stream that goes, that culture goes downstream. Poetry is a major part of that, that ecosystem flowing. And, um, but there are so many poets or poets, quote unquote, that, uh, I just did air quotes, which is terrible. <laughs> punch, punch myself. <laughs> I'm glad this isn't video, but yeah. yeah, air quotes, you know, poets who um, graduate from these programs. It's something like it's thousands every year. They don't know how to take criticism. They don't know how to criticize. They don't know how to how to articulate why they don't like something or even why they like something. You know, yeah. they, it's um, and I think to be an artist, you 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 have to be able to take criticism. Otherwise, you're just not going to learn. And it shows in there in the work that's being published predominantly now in, in major journals. It's just not, it's really not about the language. It's more about politics. Well, and what's going to happen is you, you've got all these artists in, in various medium, you know, not just poetry, but in, in a lot of other mediums where 
they can't take the critique. And so they don't learn from it. And so the generation that follows is going to be uncritiqued because this generation can't, they can't put into words what they like or what they don't like about the work that they're being shown. And so it's, I see it maybe getting even worse. Oh, I think so. Yeah. It's going to continue to get worse. And what's the, you know, it's got to end at some point or, 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 or turn into something else. I don't know. I don't know what's going to happen with the MFA world, but, um, yeah. I, I wish it would just collapse completely. Yeah. I, I never understood why. Uh, and, and I have friends who did this because I went into photography to, to do it commercially. I mean, I love the fine art aspect of it. I do a lot of it now because I, I don't, I'm not a professional photographer anymore, but I had friends who were going through the fine arts program and I, I was always curious as to what they expected to achieve by the end of it. And nobody could ever really give me an answer. It's the same in poetry. It's like, what do you, what do you want out of this? Because, you know, out of the thousands that graduate every year, it, what, 2%, 1% will actually get a job teaching creative writing. Yeah. So it can't be about that. You know, is it, because you, you needed a two-year or three-year break from the world and that you're going to be, you're now you're in debt for for most of your life. Exactly. I've heard that excuse. You know, like I wanted some uninterrupted time to work on my writing. But that's another thing. If you're, if you're in it for life, if you're really devoted to poetry, you'll find the time no matter what. You'll, yeah. you'll, find, you'll find the time and the space to write. So if you need workshops and institutional you know, scaffolding around you to, to write your, your poems that aren't very good anyway, you're, you're doomed. We'll be right back after a word from our sponsors. So what was your plan when you started, when you left school and you started to have to earn a living? Did you have aspirations of doing, of selling books or making poetry your living or was that going to be just something you did on the side always i never expected to make any kind of living off of poetry and i didn't really expect to live very long because I, the environment that i came out of didn't provide me with very many tools to survive and i left home at a pretty fairly young age i, I was 18 or just turned 19 and lived in really terrible rented rooms with with pe you know people who were not well and that went on for most of my early 12 well, for a few years and then when I was 22 I moved to uh, the coast of Humboldt County California with a girlfriend okay and got away from Delaware and Philly got away from family and um, you know, we were splitting the rent. It wasn't that expensive. We were renting a, a small Victorian house. We had plenty of space. I think the the landlord just liked us. And then I think his parents had lived there and just died. And he just wanted to make a little bit of money off of it. So he let us rent the place. And um, yeah, I got used to living in poverty, basically. And when that when I this girlfriend and I parted ways i moved into a small shack that was liter literally a shack it used to be the wood the used to be a woodshed it was the woodshed behind a big victorian house oh my god and they they did a half-assed like um 
renovation of this thing, but it was still slanted. You could roll like a pen or a pencil from one side to the other. I know because I did it. I did it many times drunk at night, just needing something to do. It was drafty. There wasn't insulated. The humidity was crazy. I was right by the ocean. So, you know, black mold was, was in this place. It was lit. I mean, and I had no money. I was barely able to pay rent. And yeah, it was those, those years were extremely painful. And that was, um, that went on for four years, five years of just intense, intense poverty, but I didn't stop writing. I that wrote throughout the question. Yeah, no, I didn't know. I, I, nothing ever has deterred me from, from writing. Nothing's ever been so bad that I didn't or don't feel compelled to write. It's a way of seeing the world. It's a way of being in the world. And without it, just as when I was a kid and now I'm 42, but it's still a means to a, a means of survival, a way to survive you know, it gives me a sense of order and it gives me a sense of purpose, you know, it anchors me to the world. And it's what I needed because I was in such dire straits in the shack that if I hadn't had poetry, uh, who knows what would have happened. Um, and that's, that's been the case several times in my life. If it weren't for poetry, I don't know where I would have been. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's the same. I mean, you, you came from an environment of substance abuse and suicide. Yeah. And that's to not succumb to, I mean, I, I know you, you had the, the problem with alcohol, but you obviously don't have a problem with suicide right now because I'm talking to you. So that's right. So, you know, poetry has definitely helped you see through that. It's, it's amazing that something like poetry, like an, like an art form can guide you through times that are so difficult. It's, it's amazing. It's an incredible gift. Yeah, it's the yeah. greatest gift in my life, poetry. And you know, that's we're jumping ahead. But when, but when I was essentially um, canceled, I'm doing air quotes again. Canceled. <laughs> that's good for podcasting too. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I was canceled. But it, and I think some of the people involved in that thought that I would just stop writing poetry, and it's like it, it made me want to write poetry even more because I needed it more. You know, I needed. I needed to feel grounded in the world in a, in a very serious way and in a very immediate way. And there's nothing, nothing like poetry that does that for me. Uh, so yeah, I wrote a book during that experience. It was, um, yeah, it didn't, they didn't have the, the effect that they intended to have didn't, uh, pan out. Now, before you got canceled, you had to actually have some success. So when did that start to happen? When did the, Turn, when, when did the turnaround happen from living in a shack to working at University of Pennsylvania and, and publishing yeah. books? And all? How, what, what turned it around? It, ha- it started in the shack because wow. in, in 2005, I had published my first couple of chap books. Do you know what a chap book is? I do not. I wanted to ask you about that. Okay. <laughs> it's, a, uh, it's a book of poetry. It comes from Scottish, uh, and it meant cheap book. And it was <laughs> when they would, it was a, and they were referring back then to pamphlets, but chat books are, um, some of them are very finely printed, but it's, it's under usually under 30 pages or so and bound with thread or staples. And it's, uh, essentially a pamphlet, okay. um, booklet. 
Uh, and it's kind of like it to, to compare it to music. It's like the e, it's like an EP and then a full, a full length book is the full, you know, it's the full length album. Okay. And, um, yeah, I published a couple, uh, chat books. I self published my first one, sent it to poets who I admired and a well-known poet who had a well-known blog at the time. People were, it, this is when people were blogging. This right. is, uh, you know, in the early two thousands, <laughs> there was no social media and he wrote a, uh, really wonderful review of, of my very first chat book. And that, you know, people started writing to me, my community started to, to grow. And then that led to the next chat book. And then the chat books led to my first full length book, I have a publisher in England. They're still one of my publishers. They published my first full-length book. And that book got some really great reviews. It caught the attention of some critics who were fairly well-known, or at the time, really well-known. You know, And then I was had work in an anthology published by, I think it was University of Iowa. It was all poems that were in homage to, uh, in homage to William Carlos Williams. And so I was... It was while I was in the shack and publishing these chat books and then the, the full length book that things really started to coalesce in ways that I wasn't even fully conscious of because I was still drinking you know, all the time and wow. still, ha- still had this um, drive to not survive. Like it was comfort to me to think that I don't have to endure this forever. You know, I didn't think I'd make it to 30. Wow. And, um, Jeez that made me feel good, which is a terrible thing. Um, I mean, it's a, you know, it's a, and it's amazing that I wrote the, I wrote three books in that shack. I don't know how and, and the hell I did it. It's solely because the poetry was an anchor for me when there, there wasn't one. Wow. Um, because wow. you know, I didn't have anything socially. I had to steal food to survive. Jeez. Um, yeah, I had a really kind neighbor who I was great friends with. And, you know, if she had like a box of stale cereal or something, she'd give it to me. But Joyce, if you're listening, thank you. <laughs> I know you gave me a lot more than than stale cereal. You know, if they had a barbecue, they'd spare me a, you know, a, a leg. Wow. Chicken leg. Gosh. Yeah, barbecue chicken leg or something. No, she was. But, you know, I, I had basically one friend who was my neighbor and her cats were very close to me. I was close to them. <laughs> um and that was it. There was no, there was no poetry world in, in Arcata, California. Um, so I was still very much alone. And, uh, I, I spent eight, nine years in the shack. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. Oh my gosh. And, and towards the end of that stay, I, I started to, you know, it was because I was beginning, I was becoming cognizant of the fact that I was wrecking my body with drinking and also became I was I had a therapist who diagnosed me with PTSD, so a lot of things started to make sense. That a lot of the sense. symptoms I was having, yeah, it's like the um, hypervigilance. Like that was like when I read about that, I'm like, holy shit! Like that's so that's what that is, you know? When I'm walking down the street and there's a loud noise and I feel like I'm going to die, and my heart starts racing. It's like I'm not crazy, you know? This is actually part of trauma that goes back to, I don't know, probably before I can really remember. So that was when things really started to turn around at that point, I guess when I was like 28, 29. So yeah. Do you have a process to your writing? I mean, are you, do you find something you're inspired to write about and then write, or are you just constantly writing and then trying to 
fit what you've written? You know, this part will go with this poem. This part will go with this poem. Is there a set process? Not a set process, but but generally there's there's a process, and it starts with writing in notebooks. Uh, you know, real like paper, hard copy notebooks. Okay. Before COVID, I would do a lot of writing in in the coffee shop because I would walk from my apartment here in Massachusetts to the coffee shop, and walking really inspires me. Gets the words flowing i will see something that interests me an image or whatever and uh, then i would go to the coffee shop and work it out and um and then work it out even more on the computer screen so it would go from notebook to computer and then lots of revisions but lately i write a lot on my phone which feels like sacrilegious wow um yeah (laughs) yeah (laughs) that's one thing i have trouble with i can do a lot of things on my phone but i i writing man i I don't think i could do that i need to i need to cut it out because well a friend of mine warned me because i'm also i'm writing a memoir as well and and i was writing some i was writing the memoir for a while drafting it on my phone because it it gave me separation from like sitting at a desk and feeling like i was doing a job and so the words just kind of came out i was writing about traumatic events and so it felt easier to just kind of i could type very fast with my thumbs and anyway a friend of mine warned me that uh Kanye West blew his thumbs out from texting too much. Oh wow! And he had to get he had to get cortisol <laughs> injections in his hands. I'm like, that's not going to happen to me. He's, you know, I think he's like a year older than me anyway. You know, I've it's never like heard I, of I got that. some time, but now I have I have like I have terrible pain in my uh, right thumb. Is that when a new I start thing? to text? Is that like like texter's thumb? Is that like a tennis elbow? It, it, if it's not, it I, it it probably should. I mean, I'm sure there are many people who suffer. Maybe they don't actually, because I think the, the people who use who to are typing with their thumbs as much as I do are probably teenagers who don't have to worry about, uh, you know, uh, <laughs> burning their thumb out. See, I did that. <laughs> I got one of those swipe keyboards. I just swipe, and that's why I get so many typos on my texts and stuff. You should see how. Oh, all right, I'll tell you a quick story. I'll probably edit this one out because I've told this a couple of times. And but uh, I had a chef on the podcast that is an enormous mug man holy god i drink a lot of water <laughs> i started doing that too and because my doctor said i really should and my wife she's like you got to drink more water all it's doing is making me pee more and i don't really feel a big benefit i'm just <laughs> going to the bathroom more <laughs> anyway i had this band on called vast robot armies awesome guys and one of the guys is a bartender at a restaurant in Kansas City named The Belfry. And he's like, you, you know, you should have my boss on. She's awesome. She's really creative. I said, okay, who is she? All right, her name's Chef Selena Teo. She's been on uh, Top Chef Masters and um, Iron Chef America. And, and all. Yeah, awesome. If she's open to coming on, I'd love to have her. So he's like, all right, I'll, I'll check with her and I'll get you guys connected. So he's like, all right, she's... She said she's down with it. Just here's her number. Send her a text. So with my swiping thing, I start saying, hey, you know, uh, love to have you on. Uh, I normally record in the evenings on the weekdays. I can also do some weekends, but it came out. Sometimes I can do anal on weekends. (laughs) And I didn't even look and I hit it and I sent it. Cause I'm, a, cause I'm, a, I was at work at the time, and I had to, to text or to, to email. I got to do it on the sly, 
So a, a minute or two later, I look at my phone and I'm reading like, um, sometimes I do anal on the week. What? <laughs> oh my God. So I'm like, okay, I've either blown it or she's got a good sense of humor. I guess I'll figure it out. So I leaned into it and I'm like, I said, I'm sorry for that. For that. that was a mistake. I always do anal on the weekdays. <laughs> and because so, I figured I've, I've either blown it or she's going to be cool with it. And she just sent me back the, the crying, laughing emoji. She said, Weekday is fine, but let's just keep it to the, to the podcast. So, <laughs> <laughs> so I was like, All right, cool. She's in. So that's a happy ending, so to speak. It yeah. was. It, uh, it, <laughs> yeah, I thought you were going you, you to say you got canceled or something. No, unfortunately, not yet. We'll see not what yet. happens if All this right. story gets leaked out too much. But uh, she's actually yeah. been on the podcast three times now. So, Oh, good. So, I got, I even lost where we were at. Holy shit. This is what happens in this show. Like I said, this is the least academic show you'll ever be on. Oh, you were just, uh, you were asking <laughs> about when, <laughs> when I started having success as a poet. Oh, that, yeah. Uh, yeah, yeah. When, let's see, where was I going to go with that? When did things really start to feel like you were successful? When when did the the job at, at Penn come and, and getting, you know, I, I'm assuming, I, th I think I, I understand this, right, that poets will get paid to do public readings and things like that. When did, yeah. when did all that start to, to happen? Well, I moved from uh, the coast of Humboldt County. I moved from Arcata, California, to the Pioneer Valley of Massachusetts, the western part of the state. Okay. Um, I live in East Hampton, which is near Northampton and Amherst, and Emily, where Emily Dickinson lived. And um, it's a really beautiful area. I moved out here because I had friends here who I knew through correspondence, other poets. And I felt like I needed to be around other poets. I was ready to be more uh, social, I guess. Okay. And so things started happening at greater frequency when I moved here. Um, I think because I was able to connect with people at readings. I gave some readings, which I, I, I barely did that when I was in California because I did, I hated flying. So I'd have to really, I'd have to put a lot of work into getting myself on an airplane. So I rarely ever gave readings. And when I did, I was just completely blown out of my mind, drunk and made absolute embarrassment of myself every single time and scandalized myself too um, in ways that will probably follow me for the rest of my life. Yeah. And so when I moved out here, a very good friend of mine said uh, he arranged for me to read at a local kind of literary salon type establishment. And, uh, but he said, you cannot drink before you read. You got to promise me you won't drink before you read. And, and, and I, I agreed and uh, kept the promise and it felt so much better reading sober. I could oh, hear the, myself, I could hear my poems, you know, I could embody the poems with my voice in a way that it wasn't happening before because I was blackout drunk. I mean, wow, drunk to, yeah. I mean, like 20, 20 beers before I would, I mean, I, wow. I would go to a bar, I would go to a bar hours and hours before the reading and just drink, 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 drink. Wow. And then read. And it was never good. <laughs> to say the least, it was never good. Um, oh, so moving God. out here, having you know friends face to face uh, who who cared about me, I started to really change my life. Went to AA, stopped drinking, totally stopped drinking. Learned meditation, which really 
was so helpful and still is so helpful to this day, especially in dealing with, you know, the, the PTSD symptoms I was talking about, the panic attacks, sure. anxiety. So I started to really develop a spiritual life too. And as I was healing physically and healing spiritually, the work improved, I think it, it progressed and more opportunities came to me. You know, I had a book accepted for publication by wave wave books, which is a, pretty prestigious uh, small press in the poetry world. Okay. And it was that book that that really blew up. This was in 2015. That book got reviewed in the New York Times, got a glowing review in the New York Times, uh, various other major publications. So I started getting more invites to go read. You know, I would travel to read. I started to like it. Oh, cool. I And it, it didn't really hit me that I could have a life in poetry that could support me until I started doing those readings, which would pay me. And then I started working for University of Pennsylvania, which was amazing. I love the program I worked for. They would bring me down to Philadelphia a couple times a year, treat me very nicely. And, and I knew that I could make a life out of, out of poetry. And that life in poetry ended the day the cancellation campaign started. Right. Uh, yeah. And I knew it was over as soon as it started. And it was it had only been a few, well, three years. It had only been three years where of me really trying to, to build a life. You know, I didn't want to commit suicide. I didn't want to die before a certain age anymore. I no longer got comfort from thinking about taking myself out. You know, yeah. it's like I wanted that's, to live. That's good. I wanted to live. I wanted to write. I, I was enjoying teaching. You know, I never expected that wow. from myself. And then it was, it was, it was gone uh, in, in an instant. That, uh, like I said, we don't really have to go into detail about this. Anybody who's interested, there's, there's more than enough resources out there, more than enough interviews you've already done and gone into great detail on this. And at some point you've got other things to talk about. Yeah, we don't have to go into to in, into it, but there's enough resources out there. No, you've done a bunch of podcasts and interviews about the whole cancellation situation. But if you want to give uh, just a brief overview uh, as to what happened, you know, you can you can go only go as detailed as you're comfortable going. When I was living in the shack and drinking. I made uh, quite a fool of myself on the internet most nights. I made many enemies that way. Uh, I made many friends that way. Um, I was provocative. I was angry. I would start fights online. I would write manifestos. I was a wreck. And um, I thought that I would just drink myself to death eventually. I was really not looking at the, the long view of things. It just There was no long view at the time. And so when I started to clean myself up and started to have success in poetry and got, I got involved in an affair I shouldn't have been in, um, it was toxic in, in so many ways, that ended. She was upset uh, in, in a way that was frightening. She started digging into my past relationships. It was a coordinated smear campaign. It went on for about six months, and then when Me Too happened... I believe she saw a golden opportunity and she got some of her friends involved and they wrote an anonymous letter 
claiming I called someone hot at a poetry reading. They sent it to my publishers. They sent it to University of Pennsylvania. No, there was no response to the letter. I am assuming because it was a ridiculous letter. And, and, and she heard, was a poet yeah. as well, right? She is a poet. She, yeah, 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 yeah. And so there was there was competitiveness on on her on her side. I think she had often made reference. I mean, I, and I have all of this in in Gmail. I never deleted any of our correspondence. She would say that she's jealous of my success. She's jealous of my ability to to connect with people on social media. She's jealous of, and she got very jealous of Wes, uh, Wesleyan University Press. Uh, accepted one of my books for publication. Yeah. And um, that really seemed to push her over the edge. So the letter that they had sent out didn't work, didn't have any effect. Um, somebody actually at Wesleyan University Press told me that they, when they received it, they thought it was a joke because of the charge seemed so flimsy. I called someone hot at a poetry reading. Right, yeah. But what it was was a flytrap. It was like if we put an accusation out there it has to be taken completely seriously. During Me Too, it had to be taken seriously. It didn't matter what the accusation was. And then any interaction I had with women was looked at through that lens, that this person is bad. This interaction I had with them must have been bad. Like one person posted on Facebook that I, I had looked at her like a meal, she said. He looked at me like a meal at a poetry reading and I was chilled to the bone. I'm like, I, I remembered meeting this person. I didn't look at her like a meal. And I had done re things that were truly a wrong and offensive. I said things that were absolutely wrong yeah. and behaved in ways at a couple of those readings that were gross, you know, yeah. cross lines that, that shouldn't have been crossed. I, I touched a woman's breasts at one of the, one of the readings. And um, that was the worst thing I had done and never did it again. I never drank at a reading again, apologized, but this is somebody who, the woman who I was in the affair with, she, when she was doing her orchestration of the, uh, of the, the campaign to, to ruin my life, she reached out to her she knew about it. Cause I told her, I told this person everything. So she right. knew all the dirt, she knew all the skeletons mm -hmm. and the impression she gave this person is no, he didn't, he hasn't changed. He's still an abuser and he's still a, a jerk you know so wow. my past came into the present and all the work i had done for years to change my life and to not be that person was disregarded because yeah. this woman i was in an affair with for the the last two and a half years is saying that it's all bullshit he's a bad person basically i you know i don't know what she wow. was telling people and there was no, you, you couldn't um, question these narratives that were being developed. No, um, no. I remember that. I mean, it happened to a lot of people. Yeah. And like you said, you know, nobody that it happened to had the opportunity really to defend themselves. Yeah, I tried. I posted on Facebook an apology. You know, I never should have done it. This is before anybody really had a blueprint for how to respond to a, to an online mobbing. And uh, yeah, I apologized. And as you know, this happens every time. It, the, the apology was just ripped apart, not accepted. But no matter what I had said, it wouldn't have been accepted. Yeah, it's like the old lawyer's trick of saying yes or no question. Have you stopped beating your wife? It's exactly like that. Yeah, it's exactly like that.
Yeah, and because the insinuation was put out there that I'm an abuser, I'm an you know, that's the they keep these words kept being repeated on social media. I'm an abuser. I'm a predator. Yeah. I'm a blah blah blah. And it's like, but there was never any evidence of that. There were no receipts being posted, and most of my interactions with people were online. So where are the receipts? And they won't show. There won't be receipts because you would see that these were consensual conversations I had with people that were later, you know, extrapolated and looked at through this lens of, wow, he's a, he's a real piece of shit. So clearly he had bad intentions. That hit you where you live, me because you lost your job at the pen. Uh, you lost publishers on one of the podcasts. You were even saying that some of the people that wanted you to blurb about their book said, no, thank you. So, Poetry saved you in, in that instance as well. You were still Absolutely. writing. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, I'd never been at a, at a lower point wow. then. I mean, I was in shock for, I, I don't know how long. I mean, the day that it all went down, January 10th, 2018. Um, yeah, I was definitely in shock. I mean, that day it was that the letter was posted. She posted a link to this letter. They, they threw the, the anonymous letter up on a WordPress site. And this, the person I had been in the affair with put the link up on all of her social media accounts. And that just went, that just blew up because yeah. the poetry world didn't have a me too scandal yet. Right. I, I, I was it. And so a lot of anger, a lot of rage was being directed at me. I was, you know, the figurehead. How big is the poetry community in the, in that regard? I mean, I, I know it would affect your, your ability to be a, published author or a speaking poet, but how, how big is that community that she was reaching? Well, when I say com it's not really a community, it's a network. Uh, it's a network of networks and they're all connected to the, this MFA grid across the country. And so that's the commute. That's the poetry okay. world. As they say, that's the poetry world. It's the more academic or it's a lot of it's coming out of academia because that's where poets can make money. And so the, the poetry world revolves around these MFA programs. And so it's, it's uh, more, I mean, it's thousands of people, you know, and, yeah. it's, and, and what, and if you're cut out from, from that poetry world, which is like the establishment poetry world, then you, you're also cut out of those opportunities to have your work seen, to have your work published first off. Yeah. And, uh, to make any, to, to give readings, you're not going to be invited anymore. I mean, everything was completely, everything was canceled that very day. I mean, yeah. the pe you know, people I wrote blurbs for, it was that the day of the day, everything blew up. They were writing to me at, to tell me they can't use my blurb. There were five, I think it's four or five books. I wrote a blurb for, Wow. and, uh, but yeah, workshop I had planned, they pulled out and they were very public and, and, you know, they tweeted out that they canceled their workshop with, with Joseph Massey and, you know, they all kind of, you know, they got many comments. Thank you. Thank you. And, oh, you know, blah, blah, blah. It, it, it's unbelievable. I, I, you know, whatever happened to, hearing both sides of the story of facing your accuser, even, you know, it, it went so far to one side. It, it, I can't even believe how blinded people got 
it was, it was blind rage. Yeah. And I understood where some, I, I had a sense of where a, a lot of the rage was coming from. People were upset. There are people in the poetry world who can be described as predators, but these people who may be predatory or who sound predatory, I've heard things over the years, they're the professors. They're the old professors who give people reference letters, who invite people to read at their schools, who give them blurbs, who whatever, favors, literary favors. That's the power. Those are the real power brokers in poetry. And that happens and, in, in so many areas of higher education. Yeah. You know, it, it, not just the arts, in, in science and in, in liberal arts. You know, that's how some students end up you know, getting ahead, whether they do that on purpose or they're groomed. It happens all the time. That's right. Yeah. And so none of the, none of the power structure didn't get, they were not called out in any way, right. shape or form. And they tried to, they put that on me. They, they were also make, trying to make a case that I had, I had abused my power in the poetry world. I had power. And if I did, it beats me because I wasn't a publisher. <laughs> I wasn't a curator of a reading series. I, I wasn't judging any contests. Book contests are a big deal in poetry. It's how yeah. most people get their books published because there's a reading fee and the reading fees keep, they help support the MFA programs. It's a vicious, vampiric cycle. Wow. Oh my And gosh. I, I, I wasn't tapped into any of that, but they, they had to make the case that I was powerful. And um, yeah, there was no fighting the narrative. There's no fighting it. So it's it kind just, of like the Wizard of Oz, you know, pay no attention to the professors behind the curtain. Look at this guy over here. Yeah. And, and, and I, like I said, I mean, I admit, I, I've admitted before me to like talked about what a wreck I was, you know, and I did things I regret and I was very public about getting sober and changing my life. And so my shit was out there, you know, just to say, I, I, it's not like I, um, and I know I, I, I realize I'm not, I'm not saying this and I don't even know why I feel that, like I should emphasize it, but yeah, I was a deeply flawed person who did things that were regrettable, but did I do things on the level and scale that they were implying? And it was all done through implication, calling me things like predator and blah, blah, blah. Well, wh- what are the examples you have of this? What are you talking about? Nobody had anything. Most of it was done anonymously, right? All anonymously, oh, this one horrible article published in a now defunct uh, online magazine written by a, a truly an activist journalist who had tweeted many times, I hate men and all kinds of shit like yeah. that. And I gave her an interview stupidly because I was desperate to be transparent. That was what I wanted to do. Well, I, yeah, I never should. Yeah. You think that that can help that that's what I should do. I mean, that, that's a, a natural reaction. All right, let me explain my side. Let me, let me tell you my, my side of it. Yeah, my heart goes out to people who are in that same position. And when they start apologizing, you know, there are people who respond, don't apologize. Why are you apologizing? It's like you, have no, you, do, you don't understand when you're being attacked in that way. It is an instinct to, to let people know that I'm not that. I'm not that. Per- I'm not a predator. I'm not, uh, you know, I am, say, a safe person. I'm not, yeah. you know, it's like it's, yeah. So, yeah, but that article that was written, if if you look at it, I mean, it's an exercise in bad faith journalism. It, 
All of the people have pseudonyms. There aren't any clear uh, accusations. It's just, it's, it's bizarre. It's making a lot out of very little. What has happened since then? Are you, are you obviously you're still writing. Has anybody turned around and said, you know, we shouldn't have done what we did, you know, either publishers, employers, or accusers. Has anybody done an about face and brought you back? Well, no, no one's brought me back. That's the thing. I I do hear from people occasionally, people who ghosted me or unfriended me or, and they apologize. They, they say they realize they, it went too far. They say lots of different things, but they would never, they would never say that in public. They would never defend me in public. Even now, three, three years after the fact, they still won't. And, uh, never will probably. And I did run into one of my tormentors who lives in this town. Oh, wow. And I talked about this on another podcast, but just briefly, I mean, I sort of know this guy, he's just an acquaintance and I don't know why he, he latched on to me. Like he, he really seemed to enjoy kicking the shit out of me online. Okay. I ran into him and he tried to walk right past me and I said, you know, he had a lot to say online. <laughs> Well, here I am. Why don't you say it to my face? And he got very, you know, I, he was irate, you know, like, what are you talking about? I'm like, what do you mean? You spent a year <laughs> tormenting the hell out of me. What do you think I'm talking about? Yes. Yeah, calling me the worst things imaginable. And, uh, and he, we went on a, we went for a two hour walk wow. and he ended up apologizing oh, and wow. yeah. And I felt I felt pity for him because he's a very weak, broken individual and I forgave him. I, t- I told him that I forgive you. I don't want bad blood yeah. with you. You live in the same town. I'm not holding any, I'm not going to hold a crutch oh, good anymore. You. Yeah. That's in that. It meant a lot to me to have that conversation. Um, even though what he did was terribly wrong and it doesn't let him off the hook, but forgiveness isn't really about, you know, absol- absolving someone of, of the things they did. It's really about letting your own self off the hook, not letting yourself be angry anymore, yeah. you know, seeing that person as a human being. So and maybe one day so, they'll yeah. come back around and they can see you as one as well. I hope so. I, I hope that conversation had some effect, but, uh, but other than that, um, no, it's not like I do hear from people for, in the poetry world often, but it's always just private. Right. You know, no one's no one's asking me to send work to their magazine or whatever. You know, that's their loss, because from what I've been reading, it's amazing. The I I love the way you visually shape poems. I mean, there's there's an art to the placement of the word on the page. The negative space on the page was just as important as the words themselves. And it's just amazing what you're able to do. I've I'm. Looking at one of the the poems right now, contain the uh, line you wrote that really has stuck with me, and I, I, my favorite so far. I'm going to air quote myself here: <laughs> "No thing until detonated into its word." That one sentence, I, it's detonated into its word. It's just that struck a chord with me, and it, it's it's making me think about things a lot differently. Just that one line. Something that isn't, it's a thing, but we, we don't make it a thing until we give it a word. And the the way using the word detonated was just 
amazing to me. That that really struck me. Thank you. Yeah, I think a lot about how language shapes and informs the world we're in, our sense of a world, and what would this world look or feel like without language? Would there be a world without language, you know, without right. this system of demarcating things and classifying them? You know, would would these would objects have would objects be have their own independence anymore? Like it's, it's like with language, we can identify things and we can find our way through a world that is still always bewildering. But um, yeah. language is, uh, yeah, I don't know if there's a world without language, but I think about that all the time. I suppose there is, I mean, in a very you know literal sense, but it wouldn't be the world that we know now. No, and unfortunately, I think that language and writing in general just doesn't seem to hold the value that it used to. And I've blame the internet for that. I mean, if, if you read, pick up any article online and you can pull out five, 10 typos, nobody edits oh, yeah. just for basic grammar anymore. I, and I, like I said, I, I just kind of, I blame the proliferation of online <laughs> magazines, I guess, and more air quotes for, uh, for that. I, I, it's like quantity over quality. Yeah. Yeah. Is that the same with, with, with modern poetry? I know you've been very critical of American, modern American poetry. Is that being affected in the same way? Yeah, in, in a very actual, in a, in actually in a, in a literal sense, uh, there was a poetry movement for that went on for a few years uh, called alt-lit, like alternative literature. And they their whole thing was using like internet language, typos, emojis. It's as terrible as it sounds. And um, it, I think that had a real influence on the next crop of poets that came up where they're really, it, the, the, the la their language lacks a certain integrity as language. It's like a painter who never learned how to draw. It's like they don't have the basic ability to write a good sentence to write a strong sentence you know could yeah. they do that probably not i mean so the work reflects in a way the uh fragmented attention span of 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 someone who basically is gro who's grown up with with computers with cell phones with with smartphones with social media um i think it's had a detrimental effect on poetry but but also the poets who take poetry seriously as an art form and not just as a vessel for self-expression. Maybe this is me being optimistic. I, I am drinking tea here. I, <laughs> the, caffeine, the caffeine's coursing through my veins. But uh, maybe the real poets sh will shine even brighter when kind of these chips start to fall. The chips of this, you know, the culture war, so to speak. I mean, I hope to God it it ends at some point, yeah. you know, with the, with the pendulum on the other side, not too far on the other side. No, you're not smashing through the, uh, the through the wall on the opposite right. end, but just kind of stabilized. Poetry's po real poets are will always exist as long as there are human beings. There will be real poets. Will they necessarily be successful? Would I have been able to have the success that I had in two thousand in the early two thousands? Or the early te teens, I guess they would say, yeah. <laughs> you know, with the, getting the books published, working for, you know, getting readings, UPenn, blah, blah. Would that be even be happening now for me? Probably not. 
because of who I am, it's uh, probably wouldn't wouldn't be happening. And I'm not opposed to people wanting to diversify their magazines and 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 their, their MFA classes and whatnot. But there's something um, destructive in about identity politics when it meets art, and it's not just poetry. It's the other arts as well, because the politics tends to override the actual art, the writing or the painting or the music. It's, it's more about the political message is what's, you know, has its front and center. And, um, yeah. Yeah, And that's why I believe that somebody like you or the next Ginsburg and and Carrick is not going to come from an MFA program because, that's not what they were about. They weren't, they didn't go through that to learn poetry, how to, how to no. write poetry. So you can't expect the next per the next revolutionary influential poet to come through that program. It's going to be somebody who, who's to completely outside of, of that whole community. Yeah. Or, or someone who got kicked out yeah. of an MFA program and like saw the light or something. I don't know, exactly. but you're right. And I think that that MFA bubble is not sustainable. It just seems uh, how much longer can that go on? Especially yeah. if we enter another lockdown. I know a lot, you know, some, a bunch of MFA programs ended up closing due to COVID. It was the only good thing about COVID. Yeah. Well, that so many people were available to do my podcast. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, yeah, I've never <laughs> lost hope, and I've I've never lost hope in poetry, but I have uh, no hope, no hope whatsoever when it comes to poets. You know, <laughs> um, poets are the worst thing about poetry. There are too, <laughs> there are too many of them. Oh wow! The other thing I wanted to ask you about about your poetry specifically is, I can obviously see how visual aspects influence your poetry. But does does the sound of words influence the words that you use in your poems? Yeah, there's a title of a, of a book um, by one of my favorite poets. His name's Clark Coolidge, and the, the title of the book is "Sound as Thought." And I've that it to me is a whole poetics, a whole kind of uh, artist statement, artist poetica in in a nutshell. It's the idea that the sound and the sense making are happening in tandem. And so when I'm writing, the sound is kind of leading on the phrases that I'm making. And uh, it it happens all at the same time. It's not really explainable beyond when I hear musicians talk about, especially jazz musicians talk about playing music, it's, it's a, it's an intuitive thing. It's not, uh, there's nothing premeditated about it. Cause I'm not a formal poet. I don't write in, in, uh, metrically formal patterns. I do write in syllabic forms with sometimes I write poems that have a certain number of syllables per line. Okay. But even those poems are, are really dictated by the sound. The sound carries the thought when, and the thought is what, kind of gives the poem its its shape and its images and whatever sense it's ultimately trying to make. But sound is, is uh, as, as important as whatever the words are saying. The combination of that and the visual aspect of the word placement. And if anybody wants an example, I, I would uh, direct them to your poem, Vermonter. That is the perfect combination of both aspects of, of, 
I guess if you actually want to see what I'm talking about, go take a look at that poem in the written form. And it's just, it's really striking as to how much of an influence it is. Yeah, thanks. Yeah, that was written on a train, and I, I really wanted to get the sense of movement. Wow. And what it looks like to just get a glimpse of something through a, through a train window. So when the lines are kind of moving off the margin, it's like uh, I want to create a kind of – a certain kind of speed and a kind of blurring and a kind of – you know, it's yeah, it's just like um, – what maybe a sculptor is trying to achieve. You want to, do you want to, well, I'll quote one of my favorite poets, Robert Kelly. He said, not, not Robert Kelly, Robert Creeley. He said that form is never more than an extension of content. So they go hand in hand. Oh, wow. Yeah. Yeah. So when did you get into photography? It's interesting you ask in the way you put it, because I, if it were like three months ago, I would have said, I don't do photography and I don't want to talk about it because all I do is take pictures on my phone and put them on Instagram. So I don't, you know, I'm not a photographer, but lately I've been taking it much more seriously. Thanks to the museum of modern art in New, in New York city, because they have a photo challenge every month and okay. they put out this, they, they put out a call for people to, to take pictures of light and shadow in dramatic ways. I don't know. I, but that got me going because I love taking pictures of shadows and lights and light and angles and lines. I like lines. Yeah. I like how I, and I like to find the balance. We've well, got an there. excellent eye. Thank you. Yeah. I've really so, enjoyed looking at, at, at your Instagram page. Thanks. Yeah. So I've been using my phone in a different way. I don't just post photos immediately to Instagram. I edit them on the phone. And so now I just really want to get down my sense of what composition means. And I will probably soon, I'll get a digital camera and kind of upgrade equipment and learn how to use it. Yeah. And um, yeah, so it's def photography is an area that I'm, I'm, I'm well into at this point. You have a, a newsletter that you put out every well, for, for subscribers, it's like every two weeks, and then you can do a paid subscription where you, there's more. How, how does that work? How do, how do people subscribe to that and, and get your work? Yeah, the way it's structured, uh, so if you subscribe, if you're a free subscriber, you'll get a poem every other week. If you're a paid subscriber, it's a, a poem every week. Um, I've, based, I've been keeping up with it. And I've been really enjoying it because it's an alternative, it's an alternative means of of publication. Because I don't even bother to try to get my work published in um, in journals anymore, and like you know mainstream poetry journals. I, I had poems accepted by the Colorado Review last year, and they were just um, at the last minute. The managing editor pulled my work, and I knew why, but they wouldn't tell me why. But <laughs> You know, I'm reaching probably more people through my Substack newsletter than I would reach anyway in the Colorado Review, and that's. I mean, I, I have a I have a strong readership, and that's one of the blessings of the cancellation is that I've had to rebuild a readership, and the readership that I've rebuilt for myself is uh, larger than the one I had before and more responsive. And um, that's wonderful. Yeah. Yeah. And the, the newsletter is, is a, it's exciting. I, I'm happy to have an outlet for the work and I'm happy to have readers and people can find that at josephmassey.substack.com. Have you ever had a, thought about combining the photography and the poetry into a, a single piece? 
I have, yeah, but I've the handful of times I've I've looked up, you know, services or websites the cost and then the kind of cheap materials they use, it just was not um, appealing to me at all. Ah, uh, no. Well, that makes sense. Well, where, where can people follow you? I hate to say on social media, but you know, that's where people follow other people most of the time and get their information. How can people follow you and, and get some poetry? Twitter and Instagram. I'm, I'm active on both of those platforms and it's the same username for each one. J, just the, the letter J, Massey, poet. J Massey poet at Twitter or J Massey poet at Instagram. And, uh, that's where they can find more. And they can subscribe to your Substack. And, uh, this has been wonderful. If I like your style of poetry, who should I check out? Who I, should I backtrack and, and inf- who influenced you that I, that I really should start looking into? I would definitely check out Laureen Niedecker, N-I-E-D-E-C-K-E-R. She's an amazing poet and not read enough. And I would also check out a poet named William Bronk, B-R-O-N-K, who writes a really kind of philosophical poetry. It may seem dry at first, but give it give it some time. Give it give it a chance. Let his let his voice kind of work its way into your head. And um, I guess the last one, if I could just mention three, uh, the other one would be Pam Rehm, R-E-H-M. And I I highly recommend any of her books, The Larger Nature, or it's called Larger Nature. Uh, That's a great book. Uh, Small Works is a great book. All of her books are great. Last question, and I'll let you go. Looking back on it, he gets ripped for some of his poetry now. How does Jim Morrison's poetry look to you now that you're in your 40s i was looking at it just recently because they his collected poems was published i think this month oh wow uh, or or the collected written works or something like that and i read the the amazon preview to see just to see yeah and um i think he was a incredibly promising poet and if he had lived longer Maybe he would have been a great poet, you know, but a lot of the po- the poems I've seen by him now, they're fragmentary and they're, they're not really congealing. He's still finding himself and you have to, you know, he died when he was 27. Yeah. Most poets don't find their, their, their voice, so to speak, until they're you know, in their thirties. So did you ever end up getting into the Doors music at all? Yeah, very yeah, very deeply actually, oh, cool. and I st- I still really like the Doors. I mean, I, I yeah, the Doors are the Doors are great. I, I think underrated. I think they're an amazing band. Yeah, I, th- I think they're just they're so unique. Their sound is just so unique. No, no one has done what they've done before or since. You, you can't replicate that sound. You can't, and they're just amazing musicians, and are completely unique and eccentric. You know, with I mean. Ray Manzarek played the bass with one hand and the bass keyboard with one hand and the keyboard with the other. I listen to live recordings and it just boggles my mind how he could do that. Yeah, they're great. Well, I would love to have you back on anytime. If- well, and we'll stay in touch. I, yeah. I, you're a decent guy and I, I really enjoy I enjoyed the conversation, man. Uh, yeah. To hear a poet say that makes me happy. Yeah, it was great. <laughs> yeah, I really appreciate it.
It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football. FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. And why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett, Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any Fantasy Points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that Fantasy Points has to offer. That's FantasyPoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. FantasyPoints.com, code Pantheon. Score more fantasy points. 